Tim Ritchie, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. Good to be with you. So for those of you out there listening, one thing Tim and I share in common is we are both from Worcester, Massachusetts. And for those of you who have never been to Worcester, Massachusetts, it is uh, a blue-collar working man's town in the center of Massachusetts. It's no Boston, but Worcester is its own beast. Tim, how would you describe the city that you grew up in? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty accurate description, I guess. Um, the nickname is the heart of the Commonwealth, and I always think that that's pretty true. You know, dead center Massachusetts. It's it's got a, you know the educational hub. We got ten colleges in Worcester, um, an industrial city that's really starting to come back to life with all sorts of new things, biotech, medicine. Um, but I just describe it as home. You know, all my friends are there, my family's from there. Um, so for me, Worcester is just is a hometown. You know. So I was a few years ahead of you in high school, but I do remember following your career as a high schooler. And you were a good runner at Doherty, but not really knock it out of this park great. So how does a 435 high school, 434 high school miler from Worcester, Massachusetts go on to win a national title in the marathon? Um, patience, I guess. <laughs> so um, you start at 434 and then you run 433. You know, the sport is about making small gains over a long period of time. And I've just been lucky um, that at Doherty and since I've had um, coaches that have really believed in me and teammates that have really supported me and family and friends that, um, you know, every time I hit a new achievement in running, they think it's it's the best thing and they want to see what's next. So when you win the Worcester City Cross Country Championship, you know, my all my supporters uh, thought that was awesome. And then they're like. Okay, what's next? You know, so it's just been it's been a long journey. Um, you know, just taking a lot of baby steps, and like I said, thankful to to the people who really made it possible. I, they just have been pushing me all along since 2001. And when you were in high school, did you have visions of competing for as long as you have been at this point? Obviously, you went on to Boston College and um, ran for them, but. Early on in your teenage years, did you think someday I'm going to try to make it as a professional runner or that I could be a pretty good marathoner? Uh, no, definitely not. Like um, my worldview back then was really small. This, the Central Mass Cross Country Championships, like the district cross country meet, was the biggest race on the calendar. And I assumed it was the biggest race on everyone's calendar. Like for me, that was the Olympic Games was Gardner Golf Course. And so that was, um, yeah, I just tried to be the best. I could be in the situation I was in. And then as that, you know, expanded and grew and as the competition expanded and grew, so did my goals. As a high schooler, what was your training like? And we'll get to your training now here in a little bit because I have some questions about how that's progressed as you've moved up in distance. But as a teenager, given the program that you came from, what were you running in terms of weekly mileage, how are your workouts structured and how did that allow you to develop now into your thirties? Yeah, I think, you know, I had two different coaches in high school, Dan Rushton for cross country and Jose Garcia for track and field. And they both taught me a lot. Um, I think they were both, yeah, they both had unique approaches to running and training theory. I don't think was that high on their, um, their lists, you know, there were coaches who were learning a lot about the science of running, I suppose, and ways to get better. But at the high school level, what they really taught was pride in your work ethic, um, trusting your teammates, being grateful for the opportunity to go for a run. And so those are the, those are the things that were kind of instilled in the training was work hard and it'll lead to good results. Don't take those results for granted. And, um, so our training was really, really simple. Um, I, I barely remember working out in high school for cross country. We would race so frequently, you know, we'd have dual meets twice a week. Um, and the other days in between were just running and we'd finish most of those runs with hill repeats up the high school driveway. Um, and we would do pushups at the top of the hill. You know, it was just real, uh, cut and dry training. It was go for a run. You know, we'd hammer if we felt good and we'd do hill repeats afterwards and we'd race on Wednesday and we'd race on Saturday. And, um, 
there was no real magic to it, no real formula to it. It was just trying to be consistent and, and, and work hard. So I'd say we were probably running maybe, uh, 45 to 50 miles a week by my senior year. Um, yeah, six, six days a week, you know, we, whenever we weren't racing, we'd usually take a day off during the weekend. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I remember. Maybe once a month, it seemed like we'd go to the WPI track and do a speed workout and it'd be this huge deal. And everybody would get like sick to their stomachs, dreading it. And we would go down there and we would do like 12 by 400. And it was a, it, you had to bring your racing shoes. And it was like this event that you were preparing for is like bigger than a race in our minds. Um, but honestly, I only really remember doing, yeah, maybe two, two to four of those during the entirety of the cross country season. So mainly just mileage and hills. And Worcester's good for that. It's also known as, as the city of seven hills. And I try to tell people who have never been that you can get really strong running around what is not really the most attractive city in the world, but it's good for making strong distance runners. Absolutely. Yeah. I lived at the top of a, a mile straight up hill. So every run I had, no matter what, ended, ended uphill. So taught me a lot. So from Doherty, you transitioned on to Boston College Division One program, and you improved quite a bit during your time there. I believe that's where you broke four minutes for the mile. Was that as a collegian or just after you got out of school? Just after, yeah. I graduated grad school in 2010, and I broke four. Um, I thought it was the next winter, but it might have actually been two winters. It might have been 2012. So how did your training evolve from the time you left Doherty to your time at Chestnut Hill with Boston College and Coach Matt Kerr? Uh, it definitely changed. I think, I mean, I was really grateful to my high school coaches for, um, just laying the foundation, but not like when I left high school, I felt like I still had so much more to give to the sport. You know, I was still excited about improvement. I still felt healthy. I felt like, um, I had a lot of running left in my legs and at BC, we were able to take advantage of it. Um, so I, when I got there, I was working for Randy Thomas. He was the men's coach for my first three years. and you know, he'd been coaching BC for 20 years and at that time and, you know, had a system that, that worked and one that I really adjusted well to, you know, good, solid, long runs. Um, you know, hills again were a big part of our thing, tempo Ks. Um, but the biggest change was just having a team to run with every day. Um, in high school, we were, we were a bunch of misfits. We would kind of clown around and we would do our regular runs. And I got to BC and there were kids on the team that really had ambitious goals and, um, I wanted to beat them all. So we kind of, uh, you know, we, we worked really well together and fed off of each other's energy. Um, and so it was exciting for me to like, yeah, be at a division one school. I never thought that would, that would be the case. And coming out of Doherty, not many athletes go D one. And, um, you know, it was just a thrill for me to go there and get started. When did the spark go off for you at BC that, you know, where you had the thought that you could, really make an impact in this sport, not only collegiately, but perhaps beyond? Yeah, again, I think it's like little steps along the way. And I had some injuries at, at BC that kind of, uh, you know, you feel the momentum building and all of a sudden you're kind of knocked back on your butt. And um, so there were some frustrating times, but um, I guess one of the biggest ones was my junior year. I went from like 80th in the region cross country to 13th and had Syracuse gotten in as a team at large, I would have made it as an individual. And so I was like, that was something that was very unexpected. I had a teammate, Pat Malaya, who had qualified as an individual the year before and said, Hey, you can do this. Like you're, you're just as good as I am. And I made it as a junior. So you can too. And I had never even thought of that as an option until the day before the race when he's like, put yourself in a position to make it to NCAAs. Um, and so I did, and I didn't make it my junior year, but that's when I started to see like, wow, this could really be possible. Um, but then it really wasn't until Matt Kerr came and he was the one who kind of really just saw um, a future for me that I, I didn't really see for myself and encouraged me to stick around for a fifth year and, um, you know, just start to set goals that are a bit more ambitious than I had before. And, you know, he, he didn't jump to anything new as far as training goes. It's just been, a, again, a slow gradual build, but we were building towards, um, yeah, to big goals in the ACC, big goals in the NCAA and, um, seeing what kind of career could evolve after that. Did you always see yourself as eventually moving up and racing the roads and half marathons 
and marathons or did you have that typical collegiate attitude of trying to stay on the track for as long as possible? Or did you realize that the opportunities were a lot less there? Um, a little of both. I mean, I love the track and, you know, this, when you feel in Boston, indoor track is such a big thing. And when you're having a great race indoors and the crowd is going wild and you like feel your momentum coming off the curves into the finish line, like that's an amazing feeling. And the track, um, you just like, I, I would encourage any athlete, even ma- ambitious marathoners to like never drift too far from the track. You know, I think learn what you learn in those events and how you train for those events is, a, is, you know, a big part of success and longer distances. Um, but as an athlete, like I don't, I've always just loved the long run. You know, I would get up with my roommate, Dave Emerson, who was on the team with me and we would just go hammer long runs like every weekend. And that's just, I loved it, you know? And so I think that's kind of what sparked the passion. Um, plus just being in Boston, being around the Boston marathon, having Randy Thomas, like in the building, who is like a Boston marathon, greater Boston track club legend, you know, and just the history of, of road running in Boston was a big inspiration for me. So I think it was a natural fit to kind of make my way into those events. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I like racing. I, I like racing any opportunity I get to race. Um, and both coach Kerr and, and Tim bro. Now the, it's just to be a good athlete, you have to be good at you to, to be a good runner. You have to be just be a good athlete. You got to be able to jump on the track. You got to be able to run cross country. You have to have all these pieces. Um, and that's what guys like Bill Rogers were doing. That's what a lot of coach Kerr's influencers were these Australian runners who could do it all. You know, they'd run marathons, they run world cross country. They'd, make it to the Olympic games on the, on the 5k, 10k. Um, so just trying to be a balanced runner. Um, yeah, it's a long winded answer to your question, but I like it all. Um, I do think it's a natural fit for me on the roads. I do feel more comfortable there. Um, and that definitely has been what has brought me the most success uh, in my post-collegiate career. Let's go back a few years to the track and you just mentioned the indoor scene in Boston, there really is nothing like it anywhere in the country um, because the spring season is just so short in New England because of the weather. Um, you ran 358 indoors at BU. Uh, that four-minute barrier is a big one for a lot of runners. Talk to me a little bit about that day, that race, what you were feeling during it and after to be like, holy crap, I just ran a 358 mile and here I was you know, graduating high school as a, you know, a 434 miler, which doesn't really mean anything in high school anymore. I know that's crazy, right? <laughs> it's insane how many, how much faster high schoolers are now. I'd come in last place in the mass state meet with my PRs. Um, you might not even finish top three in the girls race in some <laughs> yeah, states. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, it just yeah. means that running is becoming more popular. People are getting better at running. It's just going to hold everybody accountable up the chain. Um, but yeah, the sub four, um, so we kind of were sketching out the spring season and we're hoping to qualify. Um, I, yeah, now that I think, I think it was 2012 and it's funny that I don't even remember the date for such a big event. Um, but I believe we were gearing up for the, trying to make the Olympic trials in the 10 K. Um, and so most of the training in the winter for me was, um, fart licks and hills and long runs. Um, so the workout I had done prior to the sub four was three by two and a half miles out on a hilly road loop that we use in, in Boston. And, um, I also ran the three K that same day. So I, I ran three fifty eight in the morning and then a couple hours later ran my PR in the three K. Um, because we just had set it up as like, okay, this would be a good training session, you know, just get on the track, run a mile, get very tired and then try to run a strong three K at night. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you like, uh, I remember thinking like it was a possibility, you know, I knew the race was going to be hot and I knew, um, Providence was setting up some guys to pace and I figured I'll just put my nose in it and whatever happens happens. And all of a sudden I'm in second place chasing down David McCarthy and cross the finish line sub four. And it was amazing. It was an amazing moment. Like we had a bunch of recruits in the area. BC team was, uh, competing at the same meet. And so a lot of my athletes were able to be there and, my club teammates were all able to be there. 
Um, so yeah, we went bananas. Like we had a lot of fun with it because, um, you know, it's not every day somebody from Boston breaks four or it wasn't at that point and not every day, like a BC, uh, grad is able to do something like that. So, um, it was a thrill. Yeah. We had, we all had a blast kind of, kind of celebrating the moment. Yeah. And as big of a moment as that is, I mean, in the U S now, for sure, you've got to be to do anything, say in the mile, you've got to be like below 355 if you want to have an impact. And running 2820 on the track is solid, but it doesn't necessarily put you on a team. Like, what has kept you going these last few years um, to to compete at the level that you're competing at? I just love it. You know, it's. Uh... I'm just lucky to be able to do this. You know, I'm just grateful for my, my health and the ability to go for a run. And honestly, like, I think if you don't have a passion for the sport, you don't have appreciation for the sport. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning and put on your running shoes, uh, especially some days up in the Northeast. But I'm just, you know, like I said, I just love racing. I love competing, um, whatever the distance is against whoever I'm up against. And that's been the driving force. And, I've just been lucky that, um, you know, Saucony's really supported me since 2014. And so they see something in me that, you know, I'm starting to see myself and without their help, you know, maybe I would have had to, had to give it up a little, uh, a little while back, at least to the level I'm at competing right now. Um, but there's always goals, you know, and the funny thing is you, you run well, and then the next day somebody runs better than you. And there's just, there's really no end in sight. And, I always wonder, like, if the Olympic gold medalist world record holder, like, wakes up the next morning and goes, what if I could have run one second faster, you know? Um, just because I think that's in our nature as runners to, like, always be be trying to improve and trying to uh, get the most out of themselves. And so I've just been really curious to see where the ceiling is and really grateful to be able to pursue it. Um, and so, yeah, one day at a time, just get up and train and race when the opportunities come. Do you have any inkling at this point how long you'd like to continue pursuing it, or are you going to keep that open-ended? Um, I guess it's somewhat open-ended. I mean, but I mean, obviously, twenty twenty is like a big goal and a big year for anybody in the running world right now. Is the the Olympic cycle? Um, I I think that would be a healthy end point for me. You know, if I can get there in one piece and compete to the best of my ability. Um, I think that, that, you know, that could be the end of my I- intense competitive career. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I just got married. I, I have a lot of other ambitions and, um, you know, to be like, like I said, I've been really grateful to be able to do this for, for so many years. And, um, if I can get a couple more healthy years under my belt, that would be all the more of a, of a joy. Um, but I think at some point you got to be real with yourself and, put an end date on it, you know, and, and say, okay, that was great. That was a great part of my life. Um, how can I bring that energy into a fresh pursuit, into a new pursuit? Let's talk about that a little bit. One of your other ambitions that you're concurrently pursuing along with your own athletic career is coaching. Uh, you're volunteering at Yale. You live down in New Haven. Now you do some one-on-one coaching through a group called McCurdy trained. How much of your current experience and your experience as a collegian and a high school athlete, uh, how did, how is that currently influencing your coaching amongst the college kids that you're working with? And then also the individual clients that you're helping out. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I've, like I mentioned earlier in the, in the chat, like I just been lucky to have great coaches in my life. Um, men that have kind of inspired me not only to succeed as an athlete, but to try to become a better person and a more, you know, well-rounded person who is grateful for, for the opportunities is given. And so I just kind of, I don't know, I kind of saw myself heading down this coaching road. And when coach Kerr gave me the opportunity to be his assistant back in 2010, um, you know, that was like, okay, he thinks he's taking a chance on me to be his right-hand man at BC. And, um, from then on, I just kind of coaching has just been a part of who I am now and trying to help athletes achieve their goals or, um, recognize their potential is, is something I really believe in. And I draw a lot from my own experience as an athlete. 
you know, things that have worked well for me psychologically, things that worked well for me as far as training setup and progression. But the biggest thing I've learned is as being an athlete is that every athlete is completely different. And so as a coach, just trying to relate to an athlete, trying to care about an athlete. Um, those are things that my coaches did for me that I'm trying to do for the athletes that I work with is, you know, respect them as individuals, care about them and their goals, um, you know, and try to form a partnership, a relationship that's going to draw the best out of both of us. And do you think it's a path you'll continue to pursue after 2020 or whenever you call it quits on your own career? I mean, I think a part of me will always be a coach, you know, just like a part of me will probably always be a runner. I'll probably be the old guy running around Charles river, you know? And, um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever stray too far from coaching, you know, um, what form that will take. That's, I mean, half up to me and half up to the opportunities that will exist when the time comes, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I've liked this individual coaching thing. It's been fun to coach athletes of different ability levels and athletes with a different range of goals. Um, and I really like working with the Yale team, just like I did with the BC team and trying to coordinate team dynamics and trying to form team goals and sketching out a season and everyone's wearing the same Jersey, you know, that stuff's really exciting too. So, um, I'd like to stay in the world, uh, in the coaching world as best I can, you know, whether that means I'm coaching full-time at the collegiate level, um, whether it means I go, you know, coach at the high school level and introduce kids to the sport and introduce people to to distance running for the first time, you know, that's something that I thought a lot about as well. So yeah, like I said, I, I would love to be a coach. I think it's a part of who I am as a person. And, um, you know, I'm just open to where the road leads me, um, when the time comes. So for you working with the college kids at Yale, that's a familiar experience. You're a collegiate athlete yourself. You can really relate to the things that they're dealing with as students and as athletes. Um, currently working with one-on-one clients, um, athletes of different ability levels who may or may not have had a high school or collegiate background in the sport may not have a ton of competitive experience. How is that or has that opened your eyes to another side of the running world? And what have you learned from working with those types of athletes? Yeah, I've learned that, um, the gap between elite collegiate runners and people who are trying to just run a PB at their local 5k is not as big as people think it is. So, um, they, you know, and this is especially true in Boston where I always joke that like you can open your front door in Boston and somebody would be running by you at six minute pace, you know, that you don't even know because the everyone out there in the community is training and everybody out there is trying to, um, run their best. And so, you know, I've learned that when you can get an athlete um, to be passionate about running, to be passionate about their health and fitness, and to be excited about getting out the door to enjoy the sport, um, it's just a natural thing that that leads into kind of um, formalized training and goal setting. And, you know, I, I just think that, yeah, I was surprised. Like, you obviously structure the training a little bit differently. They can't go handle the frequency or the volume or the intensity of workouts that kids at Yale can handle. Um, but they love working out and they love going for long runs. Um, and they love, you know, seeing their mileage accumulate and they love the fact that they get nervous on race morning. And, um, so it's just been cool for me to see that, that same thing, the thing they said, the things that I'm feeling when I'm on the start line of a race is the same thing that, um, you know, an athlete of mine who's trying to run a 25 minute 5k is feeling. And that was some, that was a, maybe something I wasn't expecting, but something that I've been really like impressed by, um, when it comes to, to my individual athletes. Yeah. I've had similar experiences with my own athletes and it's always been interesting to me to be continually reminded of the fact there are more similarities between sort of the middle and back of the Packers in the front of the group than there are differences, but I feel like there still is this big gap in the running world and especially at the at the front of the sport where the sport is having trouble gaining new fans and, and keeping fans. And I think there is this um you know there's this gap of let's call it gap of relatability from the middle and the back of the Packers to the to the front of the Packers. What do you think 
more like front of the pack runners can do to connect with the people who are also participating in the same events to show them that, hey, even though we are running a lot faster than you, we're really not that much different because I think there is this layer of intimidation that exists that prevents people from, you know, from the, that prevents people at the middle and back of the pack from understanding the front of the pack folks. And then it goes the other way as well, where the, the faster runners don't really understand the middle and back of the packers and the fact that they're, you know, really looking at things in a very similar way. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same way that any two people who don't understand each other need to approach it. You just got to start with one-on-one local relationships. And so I think for me being in new Haven, like this is a great road racing scene down here. And, um, I've coached a few programs like leading up to the new Haven 20 K and we have a half marathon the next town over. And there's a big five K coming up on Sunday morning here. And, um, there, those are just all the opportunities for me to engage with runners in my own community. And I think that's where it has to start. You know, I think sometimes, um, pro runners look at, okay, how can we relate to the masses? And they get overwhelmed by this idea that they have to relate to thousands and thousands of people. But, um, I think it has to start locally and I think it has to start like in your own community. So when I'm running down the street, you know, and I, you know, the other day I was, uh, stopped at a red light and I was just chit chatting with somebody else who was there and they're, you know, just about running and okay, cool. And we went on and had a conversation and, um, I just think it's, yeah, like I said, it's about engaging and being, being open and being willing to share, um, share your passion for the sport with, with those who are, are closest around you. So, um, I think now with like social media, um, there's this sense that it has to happen on social media and maybe it does. And I just think at that. So for me, like, I just don't see myself really relating to other athletes via social media. Maybe I am, but, um, I like for me, it's been these interactions I've had with individuals, uh, here in New Haven, back in Boston, um, that have made them what I think would have been the biggest impact on, on the runners around me. I think that's a great answer. Let's switch gears a little bit. I've been holding off on talking to you about your race this past weekend at Cal International. You won your first national title in the marathon. Big breakthrough for you running under 212, which I believe is the second fastest American time of the year. Tell me a little bit about that race and your mindset and goals heading into it and then just how it played out once you got out there on the roads. Yeah, it was it was great. <laughs> Man, it feels good to win. Like uh, I was really I've run a lot of these road champs and uh got a shoebox full of third place to 10th place medals and to to have the first place one is really really special to me. Um but how it, like the goal going in was, you know, we coach bro and I see this kind of as the beginning of the the cycle leading up to 2020. And so just the goal was to learn more about the marathon and to be patient, um, in the first half and see if you can like really hold your form and stay strong through the second half. Um, it was mainly the goals were less geared around time or, or place and more geared around like, okay, how are you going to approach this? How do you want to feel at certain checkpoints of the race? Um, which was good because it kind of gave me a plan for the first half and then gave me some freedom for the second half. And so I was checking my splits for the first half. I was trying to stay within myself. I, was, I wanted to come through halfway about 67 minutes. Um, and I was 66, 52, I think. And so, um, so that was great. And we hit halfway and I was like, okay, now, how strong can I be in the second half? Can I catch any of these guys that are ahead of me? And can I hold it together and, you know, run strong through the last 10 K, which I failed to do at my previous two marathons. Um, and then, so yeah, things kind of just unravel, unraveled, uh, organically after that, all of a sudden there were some people coming back off the front pack and I see it, saw them. So that inspired me to like start chipping away at them. And then all of a sudden I was in the main chase pack. And when I caught up to them, that pack kind of imploded and the race really started. And then we saw Parker Stinson coming back and all of a sudden it was like, Oh shoot, like you could win this thing. If you, um, 
if you dig deep for it. And um, so it really wasn't until 5K to go that winning the national championship became a possibility for me, you know, and that's when uh, it's one of those things where you can have all your plans and your goals and your structure for the race. Um, but sometimes you got to seize opportunities as they come. And, and that's what happened. All of a sudden it was like the race really changed for me from 22 to 24. And then I was, um, you know, running for my life and trying to get across the finish line. Yeah. Take me through that moment when you took the lead. Was it kind of an, oh shit moment? Don't screw this up. Or did you feel pretty confident once you moved into the lead that you could hold it to the end? I had a split second thing where I was running um, with Tyler McCandless and Kia and we were catching Parker and it was like, okay, do I sit with these two guys and see what I have in the last 400 or 800? Um, but my body was just ready to run. And, um, you know, you make these decisions on the fly and I was just like, this is it. Like go right now is your chance go. And I think I ran like a string of low four fifties and, um, but I remember thinking to myself from 24 onward, I was like, I was just telling myself to hurt and like telling myself to keep pushing. And, um, yeah, I just remember being like, hurt for this, hurt for this, hurt for this. And that way the pain that you're feeling isn't a negative. It's like what you're willing your body to do. Um, and so I was like embracing the kind of discomfort and pain I was feeling and, um, just trying to get a minute closer to the finish and a minute closer to the finish and a minute closer to the finish. Um, you know, you can't take the finish line for granted in a marathon at any moment, like things could have gone sour for me and Tyler and Kia could have come right back up on me. So try to keep my foot on the gas until I broke the tape. You just mentioned how in your two previous marathons, the last 10 K didn't go so well. And that's not an uncommon occurrence for many marathoners, even age groupers. What went different in this race or in the training leading up to this race that allowed you to have a stronger close? Um, I was pretty healthy for this buildup. Like I just wasn't really healthy for the Olympic trials buildup. And, um, I think that, you know, you can fake the fitness for a little while, but not in the Olympic trials in the last 10 K. And so that one was, you know, I went in there and took a big swing and hoped it would, it would click and, and it didn't, um, New York, I had a great buildup. Um, but I don't think I was quite I was quite there yet. You know, I think for marathon training, a lot of it is cumulative. So every marathon you run is a learning experience. Every buildup you do is going to benefit you for the next buildup. And so, um, plus New York, man, that course, so dang hard. <laughs> the last 10K of that course, if you can run even splits on that, like you're, you're an athlete. So I think for me, I ran a lot of that race alone, um, from I think, about 5k on, I was completely by myself and, um, you know, just moving up well, but I think I didn't have the fuel plan that I really needed. And I just didn't have this, the strength in the last 10k to get it done. And so for CIM, the buildup was, was pretty smooth. Only a few hiccups, only a few missed workouts, missed long runs, you know, and, um, not many. Um, I focused more on, on fueling and trying to get more gels down or trying to eat more carbohydrates a couple of days before. Um, Plus we had ama- like we had amazing weather out in CIM. It was like cool and not much wind and it was a no 10- excuses kind of day. Yeah, the last 10k there is like pretty pancake flat, and so um, you know if you're feeling good there, there's an opportunity to really run well. And I was talking to Steph Bruce before the race, and she said you can negative split a minute in the last 10k if you're feeling good. And um, I kind of took that to heart, and we got down there, and I was just yeah, I was able to run. There was definitely fear in the back of my mind because of the PTSD of the last two marathons. I was like, Oh shoot. Like, okay, that's 21. My fingers are crossed. Okay. 22. Um, but the collapse never happened. So I just kind of kept, kept rolling with it and was grateful for every mile marker I saw. At the end of CIM, you take two left turns on the way to the finish line. At that point, you had the race pretty well won. Tell me about what you were feeling in that moment, coming down the final straightaway, everyone going crazy, knowing you were about to win your first national title. Yeah, I was just trying to enjoy it. Um, I was trying to think of my family and my wife and uh, just the people that really made it possible. And um, yeah, so going into the second to last turn, that's what I was thinking. And then, you know, enjoying the crowd before the last turn. And then I took the last turn. I saw 211 something on the clock. 
And I was like, oh man, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta reel it in and get to this finish line. Cause, um, I had no idea that I was, um, getting close to sub 212. And so I think I saw like 211.40 or something when I rounded the bend and I was like, oh man, I got a boogie and, uh, get across, <laughs> get across that line. And so then I kind of switched back to race mode for the last hundred meters, you know, and, uh, go into sprint, sprint mode there. You had just mentioned some fueling adjustments that you made in the buildup to this race. I know people will be curious about that. So what was your fueling plan for CIM and how did it differ from previous marathons? Yeah, so what I did was um, I took uh, goo roctane, so just a just goo gel. Um, that one has caffeine. And I had one on the start line and then one every 10K. Um, so 10K, 20K, then I think 32K or something. Um, plus water whenever I didn't miss my bottle, which was half the time. Um, so I just kept it pretty simple, like just goo and water. And then I think one of the biggest differences was this race was at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. instead of 10 a.m., which was like New York and, and the trials, I think, were 9.30 and 10 or something like that. And so I think like dinner and breakfast, it makes a difference when you have like, you know, the race is that much earlier, like what the stores that you were building the day before are still a little bit fresher versus, you know, sleeping for eight hours and eating a bagel and then waiting three hours for the race. And all of a sudden it's been, I don't know, um, 15 hours or something since you had dinner. So I think that made a big difference too, like subtly. Um, but yeah, so that was the thing. Like I had a bagel, banana, coffee. I had some UCAN and uh, emergency, which is like a vitamin C mm-hmm. drink um, pre-race and then the four gels and water um, during the race. What does this win do for your competitive career or what has it done in the days following the race? Do you think anything's changed at all or do you think anything will change for you because of this result? Um, a little, like it's been fun. (laughs) Like a lot of people from my past and present have reached out. And I think that's been a big change is like recognizing how many people had been following my career that I didn't even realize. Um, teammates from who graduated BC back in 2006 and people from Worcester that, you know, I may have lost touch with, you know, reaching out to congratulate me. So it just, put a perspective on my career. That's like, okay, wow. Like people are still invested in this and, um, proud of the success I've been able to have. Um, but I think I have to take the, uh, the Bill Belichick approach to this race and recognize that this race was great. I won the race and it was great in and of itself. What does it mean for tomorrow? Not a whole lot. You know, I have to treat tomorrow like its own, um, training day, you know, I, like when I ran 101 two years ago, there was this, okay, all of a sudden he's a contender for the Olympic trials and I wasn't, I ran 221. Um, and so I think is, you know, just having a lot of gratitude for the race and for the success, but recognizing that, um, success, you can't take it for granted in the sport. And I'm hopeful that this will open up new opportunities for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean those opportunities are going to be successes automatically. And so I want to kind of stay, stay on the grind and, and stay patient and, um, you know, really like really enjoy this win for, for what it was. You'd mentioned earlier that you and coach bro, that's Tim bro saw this race as the start of your build up toward the 2020 Olympic trials. Um, that's a relatively new arrangement for you working with coach bro. He's head of the Saucony freedom track club. Talk a little bit about what the Saucony freedom track club is and about that relationship that you have with coach bro. He's obviously up in the Boston area. You're down in new Haven, just sort of how kind of how that works out and maybe what's changed for you since coming under his guidance. Sure. Um, so Saucony freedom track club, it was like officially launched, uh, late summer. And it's just an initiative that Saucony wanted to support, um, you know, a handful of athletes to come to the Boston area where their headquarters are and not only train and have these ambitions as athletes, but be involved and be interacting with, um, the staff at Saucony at the headquarters. And so it's a great relationship where 
you know, the athletes that are there in Boston can, and that's everybody but me, <laughs> can go and take advantage of the weight room and then they can go and talk to sports marketing and they can have a conversation with the guy who makes their shoes and um, the social media coordinator, you know, and it's just a great, you know, there's real open door policy and it's been awesome. Like we had a little kickoff and a little orientation back in September and got to know a lot of the people who make things happen at Saucony. And it's just really cool for somebody who wears their shoes to see how that shoe goes from idea to creation, to marketing, to being on the shelf in the retail store to on somebody's foot. And um, so I think that was like the primary purpose of the Freedom Track Club is to have this interaction between corporate headquarters and the athletes. Um, the athletes themselves, I mean, they're off to a quick start. Tommy Curtin and Molly Seidel were both second at the 5K championships in New York in November. Um, we got a, f- a few Ivy League grads. We have a Yale grad uh, on the Saucony Freedom Track Club right now, James Randon. So it's just been it's been fun to see that row um, and to and to see it actually start to take shape because I've actually been with Tim Bro for a year and a half now, and so since before the Freedom Track Club was officially a thing, he and I started working together, and there was this idea of trying to get athletes to come to Boston and. Um, you know, because New Balance has a team and Adidas with the BAA has a team and Saucony kind of wanted to, you know, have their dog in the fight as well. And um, I'm excited. It's been awesome for me because I'm inspired by these athletes um, and learning a lot from the other athletes on the team. And I head up there maybe, you know, one weekend a month um, just to kind of check in with the team and get some workouts in, get some training in. I'm heading up there this weekend to to see them, some of the, some of the athletes are racing on Saturday at indoor track meet. Um, so yeah, it's been cool. It's been good. Like, I think it's, it's not the easiest thing to be, uh, two hours away from your team and your coach, but I've been, I've been a pretty independent athlete for a long time. And same thing was happened with coach Kerr, you know, granted we were both at BC and we saw each other a lot. Um, but he recognized that, I, you know, I was a pretty self-sustainable athlete. He would give me the training and trust that I would go get it done. And similar, similar thing with Tim bro. He'll, you know, we touch base, we talk all the time, but he'll say, this is what I think you should be up to. What do you think? Okay. Do we have an agreement? Keep me posted. How, um, how has your training evolved in the last year and a half that you've been working with him, particularly, particularly as it relates to the marathon? He was more of a track guy, 5k steeplechase, um, did some road racing, how, you know, how has he shaped your, your marathon training and, or how have you guys gone back and forth to put your current program together? Yeah. So one of the, one of the biggest changes was just a big lifestyle change for me. Like I left my job at BC and moved to a new city and, um, just took this risk to be more focused of an athlete and like really try to live the pro athlete lifestyle. And so that's had a big impact on my training because now I have more time. And so I can do the stuff in the weight room and, you know, get a little bit more volume in and spend time recovering. And so that's been a big change. Um, and coach bros like taking advantage of that and, and try to, um, just make small steps like the New York build up, the spring road racing season, this build up. You know, if you look at the training, it, it just builds upon itself slowly, slowly by slowly. Um, but I think the good thing about being a coach who hasn't coached marathoners is that you have to bring your instinct and you have to bring your creativity to it. Um, so you're not, you don't have in your head a preconceived notion of what it takes to be a successful marathoner. What you have is, okay, I have this athlete in front of me who has been successful in other events by doing these certain things, how can I translate that to the marathon? And I think that's something that coach Kerr did really well with me. And I think that's something that, that coach bro has really taken advantage of is, um, okay, how can I make Tim into a marathon runner? And he's, you know, he's learned from a lot of great coaches. He's asked a lot of questions. Like he, when he talks to me about marathon workouts, he's like, Oh, I was reading in this book. I was talking to this coach or I, you know, I bumped into so-and-so and he said this. And, um, so he's a real student of the sport and, you know, not afraid to 
get help when he needs help. And I think, you know, it's been a collaborative effort and a big learning experience. So he would assign a workout. And if it was a failure, I'd be like, this was really hard. I think maybe we should switch this around or do this, or this was a success. I think I need more of this. And, um, so yeah, it was just a living, breathing process, um, throughout the whole buildup. There was no, you know, there was no 12 week plan. It was kind of like a two week plan after two week plan after two week plan. And, um, yeah, and I think it, I think it worked. You've mentioned a couple times about the importance of athleticism as it relates to becoming a better runner, both for yourself and the athletes that you work with at Yale, and then also the athletes that you work with on a one-on-one basis. What are some of the things that you have your own one-on-one athletes do outside of just the key running workouts each week to improve their performance, stay healthier, get stronger, those types of things. Yeah, I think one is just having a a versatile active lifestyle. So, you know, going on hikes or, you know, bike rides and just having fun in your life, like playing sports, (laughs) you know, things that um, like when you're a kid, you do all these things and you're becoming an athlete without even realizing it. Um, just because you're out playing. And as adults, sometimes we get on these one track minds and forget the benefit of um, versatility and of just kind of playing and enjoying it. And so, I mean, I, so I, I like to mix it up with my, with the training. I like to make sure athletes are, you know, running different terrain, that they're doing different types of workouts, that they're engaging different systems. And um, I mean, I'm not a strength and conditioning coach, but I've done a lot of that work myself and I've done a lot of research on that myself. And so just implementing a few things in the weight room. And this is something that has been a big change for me over the last year and a half is having the time and focus to get in the weight room and do these things to kind of stay healthy and move your body in different ways. Um, you know, running, you just spend all your time kind of in this one plane doing this repetitive motion. And, um, it's good to get in the gym or get on the basketball court or the tennis court or something and just move your body in uh, a different direction. So little things like that where it's fun and it's something that you can do semi-consistently, um, you know, where the athletes engaged in these, these activities and they don't see it as a, as a burden or as a secondary workout. I think that's, that's the important thing. Cool. Last question. You're less than a week removed from CIM right now, which is obviously a huge effort for you, what have the last few days looked like and what are the next couple of weeks look like coming off of a marathon and how soon will it be until you really get back into training again for your next big race? Yeah, the last few days, um, they've been good. Like I took a red eye home, uh, that night to try to like get home to my, my wife as quick as I could. And, um, it's just kind of funny cause, uh, then the next day she's off at school and I'm just sitting here with our cat, like nothing changed. I'm sitting, just sitting here by myself with a cat, like, yeah, I'm a national champion, but here I am like alone in my, <laughs> alone in my apartment, um, playing hide and seek with my cat. So it's just, it was a humbling thing to be like, okay, that was, you know, like I said earlier, it was a great moment. Um, really enjoying the rest and we're going to head back up to Boston this weekend and celebrate with, um, you know, some old friends and family, uh, for the weekend, which is going to be a lot of fun. And, but from a training standpoint, yeah, just taking some downtime just to like, not think about running and let my body kind of recover from the buildup in the race and just, uh, yeah, just enjoy this, this feeling. Um, uh, as far as what's next, it's, it's tough to say, like planning on having a meeting later in the week with coach bro and kind of sketching out the spring. Um, I didn't run a spring marathon last year just cause I, I don't, didn't think I was ready for another one. I needed to work on a few things. I ran cross country. I ran the, a lot of the other road championships, I ran some road 10 Ks and a four miler. And I had to kind of get back in touch with, with the basics while kind of making advances in training. So as far as what this spring looks like, whether it includes a marathon, I'm sure that's something that we'll figure out pretty quickly. Um, but I'm open to having that conversation with the, with coach bro and, and taking his advice seriously. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I want to be a marathoner, right? So I just love it. And, uh, despite now I consider myself two for five in marathons. 
So despite still having a losing record against the marathon, I, I still love the event and um, I'd be happy to do one in the spring if, if the opportunity was there. Um, but we'll see right now. I'm also, uh, currently have a spot for the world half marathon team, but the Houston half marathon is towards the end of the window for qualifying for the world half marathon team. And that race usually yields a lot of really good results. And so anticipate that I, I could get bumped from that, uh, from that spot, unless I also run the Houston half marathon in a couple of weeks. So I don't know. We'll see lots of questions, but, um, I'm sure I'll have answers, uh, in the next couple of days, but for now, just trying to like, um, yeah, just relax and get back in touch with the Yale team and get back to business with my individual athletes and just kind of get back in the routine of life. Before I let you run off to practice here, where can listeners find you online or follow your adventures? Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll, just, I'll step up my social media game if people are interested. You're a national but, champion now. You have to. <laughs> I would say if they want, they should just come down to my apartment and like we'll grab a cup of coffee or something if they want to, <laughs> if they want to get in touch with me. Um, but no, yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, uh, Tim Ritchie, WTD uh, for both of them. So feel free to follow along. Um, and then if you're in the new Haven area, we're trying to promote this run NHV thing on social media. And by we're trying to promote it right now, it's pretty much just me, but, um, trying to build a community of runners here in new Haven and trying to, you know, highlight all the amazing places there are to train and compete in new Haven. Um, it's a city, a lot, a lot like Worcester where from the outside looking in, People don't really understand the allure of it, but once you live there and make it your home, you realize how special a place it is. And uh, especially for running, like New Haven's really kind of gone above and beyond my expectations. And so, yeah, check it out. Run, <laughs> hashtag run NHV. If you're in New Haven, let's go for a run. That sounds great. Always great to talk to you, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations again on your victory. Cool, Mario. Really appreciate it.